In America, the word Vietnam is usually associated with war, and only that. But to some like me, it means home, my first home. I grew up with no memory of Vietnam. I was only two when my family escaped Vietnam on a boat. Saran Bynum doesn't have many specific memories of Vietnam either. She was around three years old when she left the country where she was born. But unlike me, she didn't leave with her family. She was stranded at an orphanage. It was uh, an abandoned army barracks, and it was nothing but broken windows and cement floors. We had these little makeshift baby cribs. Our diet consisted of fish and rice, sometimes milk. I wish I, I remembered some things, but someone told me it's a blessing that you don't remember back then because it was a traumatic experience, and it probably say, saved me from a lot of mental anguish. I'm Tan Trung, and this is the Tan Report. The end of April will mark 48 years since the end of the Vietnam War. On April 30, 1975, North Vietnamese forces took control of what was then the capital of South Vietnam, Saigon. The war's end was the beginning of profound changes for thousands of native Vietnamese. Following the fall of Saigon, an initial wave of 125,000 Vietnamese refugees came to the U.S. Saran was in that wave, but she was part of a more specific group of Vietnamese. Ahead of the anniversary of the fall of Saigon, I sat down with Saran to discuss her journey to the United States and her ongoing journey of finding her birth mother and ultimately herself. How long have you been in New Orleans? I was raised here since I was about between three and four years old. So born in Vietnam, transplanted to New Orleans, but there's a lot in between that because you were part of the Operation Baby Lift. Yes. On April 3rd, 1975, then U.S. President Gerald Ford announced a plan to airlift orphans out of Saigon before the impending takeover by Viet Cong forces. The children would be taken to the U.S. and other Western countries. Operation Babylift began the next day, but the initial flight ended in a deadly disaster. The C-5A Galaxy crashed about 20 minutes after takeoff. 138 passengers were killed. 78 were children. 176 people survived. Operation Babylift would continue. More than 3,300 children would be relocated across the world. Saran was one of them. Clearly, you were too young to remember that, but can you give us a little bit of background of, of that operation and of how that brought you here? How I found out about the background was I have some paperwork from the Daughters of Charity. I found out some of the nuns from Daughters of Charity, I don't know their name previously, but a lot of the nuns were um, sent to Vietnam to help take care of the children. So in the paperwork, it said that I was abandoned as well um, by an unknown mother. And uh, some stranger came and found me and brought me to the Anfong Orphanage. From there, my mother now has a sister who lives in New York. During the time of the operation call from President Ford, there was a newspaper article that was requesting adoptions across, like around the world. And my aunt got a hold of it. And she sent it to to my mother with a handwritten note. (laughs) And it said, this may be your chance to adopt because my my parents didn't have any children. So that's where the whole 
thing started. My mom got that article. And they went through the agency, the Daughters of Charity Agency, and they saw my picture because I, I, I don't know how this happens, but the pictures were sent, I guess, to a lot of the agencies, and I guess they pick who they want. <laughs> they like my picture. It was a big old picture of me, my big old face. And so they got me. We were flown to a couple of places, Hawaii, and, and I ended up in New Orleans. Uh, she had to fly uh, to get me to, at another state and then come and bring me to New Orleans. So she came by, my, by herself and then brought me to New Orleans, and my dad joined us. What may be hard for people who are not refugees to understand is the process of assimilation, that becoming part of a new culture or society, isn't always filled with eagerness or excitement about the opportunities ahead of them. That doesn't diminish the feelings of relief for escaping whatever situation they were in before. Nor does it negate the feelings of gratitude toward their new home. The refugees may simply miss what they once knew as home. Since so much of what I cover is related to New Orleans, let me reference what Hurricane Katrina did to so many families in the Gulf South region to make this more relatable. In the immediate aftermath of the storm in 2005, more than one million people along the Gulf Coast were displaced, scattered across the U.S. Their homes may have been flooded, damaged, or straight-up destroyed. For a time, and in some cases for good, evacuees had to stay in the cities or states they evacuated to. Some evacuees referred to themselves as Katrina refugees, and other people labeled them as such. The evacuees may have been thankful for the generosity of the countless communities which hosted and helped them during their displacement, but that didn't stop their feelings of longing of home. Think of all the New Orleanians who were on TV during that time talking about how much they missed their city, how much they missed the ritual having red beans and rice on Mondays, the second lines, Mardi Gras, the saints playing in the Superdome. Words like trauma and PTSD were common after Katrina. Now apply that same kind of empathy or understanding to refugees of the current war in Ukraine, the recent war in Afghanistan, and millions of other refugees around the world many of whom left their first lives knowing it would be the last time they would ever see home. This feeling of disconnect is something Saran and I share, but she carries another complexity that I don't. There's a part of me that I know that I'm blessed to be living the life that I live now, but there's also a part of me that constantly wonders what my life would have been had I not left Vietnam. And I'm wondering, is that something that you wrestle with? Do you uh, grapple I with have, that? I have, I have. Growing up in school, in New Orleans especially, there was, you're either white or black. And I uh, went to Catholic school, and then I went to public school. So I didn't know who to identify with. I was always in the middle. And since this and, is a podcast, I yes. mean, if you could describe your background, I mean, if you yes. feel um, comfortable with that. Uh, background in uh, African-American and Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. Yes, African-American and Vietnamese. Um, but I didn't know much about my Vietnamese. I didn't know I was Asian back then. <laughs> my mother would ask me, because my dad's light-skinned and my, my mother's dark-skinned. They're African-American. And she would say, Saran, that's my given name by my parents. She would say, what color is your dad? And I would say, white. And she would say, what color am I? My mother. And I would say, black. And then my mother would ask me, what color am I? And I said, I'm white. So I thought I was white. I didn't know anything about Asian. My, I don't think I don't remember my mother saying you're Asian and you're black. Did you say so, white because you kind of associated just, that with your father? Yeah, light skin, white. You know, I kind of associated that because my dad he's light skin, and so 
by me not really having the actual definition of race, that's all I saw was he's not dark, he's light, so I'm thinking white. Saran and her adoptive parents lived in New Orleans East, where many Vietnamese refugees came to settle after the war. The questions about her past, her race, and ethnicity were things Saran's adoptive mother knew one day would have to be answered. My mother did promise me. She said she had a folder. It was a blue folder with all the information about my adoption. And she said, Saran, when you're ready to understand where you're from, this is a folder. I'm going to have it in my nightstand. Let me know, and I can present it to you. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Later on in life, oh, gosh, my mom, she finally had a discussion with me about who I am. Uh, she said I'm Vietnamese, and she explained that that's Asian, but I still didn't understand the whole concept, and I'm African-American. And she finally told me that I, I, I'm adopted, and that was uh, it possibly was around when I was eight years old. How and did you digest that? I really, I still didn't understand the concept. I'm thinking, okay, well, okay, but you're my mom and dad. That's all I knew. I didn't have any emotional breakdown at that point because I was still young. And but you didn't really did. remember the transition, the operation, no, getting on the plane and coming to I didn't even the know US. the history of it. I, I was completely just in the dark. Not knowing. And to be fair, you're a kid. Yeah, I'm a kid. A kid who did what a lot of us did when we were young, compared ourselves to other kids. In high school, I really had a rough time because a lot of the, the African-American students would, you know, say, oh, you're act white. Why do you talk that way? You talk like you're white and you're, you're not black. And it just hurt me a lot. And I remember one girl talking about my facial features and teenagers can be so rough yes it it was or or some girls would be positive and they would say oh I love your hair it's so pretty can I play in it so I got a lot of comments about what I look like and it just I felt uncomfortable because I'm looking at everyone else and I used to wish that you know why can't I look like them like I used to be very like sad and depressed over that aspect of not looking like my classmates or my friends because I didn't see anybody that looked like me. But just the little things that people don't think about. In the African-American culture, they would talk about certain things that I really couldn't understand. Like what? Um, just simple stuff. I mean, I'm in high school. I want to catch the bus. All my little, all my girlfriends are catching the bus, and they talk a certain way, and and they eat certain foods. And I couldn't understand. I couldn't really have a conversation with them because they would talk a certain way. They would have a slang, and especially in New Orleans. You have a New Orleans slang on top of that. It's very specific. <laughs> My mom's from New York, so she had a New York accent. and she Also very specific. Very proper. And my dad, he refused to talk like he was from New Orleans, and he was he 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 his vocabulary was very you know clear, no curse words, no slang. So that's how I learned how to speak. But when I'm talking to my to my friends, I would try to emulate them, like you know, when I'm with my white friends, I talk white. <laughs> my black friends, I talk. It's code switching. I'm like, oh my god. Well, it's code switching is what they call it now. Oh. I mean, because you know for. <laughs> For people like you and to a certain degree people like me when you have to assimilate mm-hmm. and you have to run in different circles and you're not quote unquote from here i mean we're both from vietnam mm-hmm. technically but factually we are from vietnam 
we are perceived differently. Yes. You know, yes. people often ask, where are you from? Yes. And it's not where are you from in the U.S., but mm -hmm. where are you really from, which right. reaffirms that you're not from here. So right. to adapt to that, we, we switch codes is what they call it. Mm -hmm. We have to adapt to whatever circle that we have to run in because ultimately that is the refugee's experience is that to survive, to advance, to thrive, you have to be in the environment. You have to accept, but you also have to be accepted. So part of that being accepted yes. is mm -hmm. to speak the language, to mm -hmm. wear the clothes, to eat the food. Correct, correct. So was yes. that transition for you <laughs> just bumpy at every step of the way? It was. Um, but when I got the, the strength to speak my emotions, I wrote, like a journal about my experience, and it was something to the effect of uh, not being black enough and not being white enough. I wrote it, and somehow I don't—I can't remember how I did it, but it got in the paper, and it opened up a lot of people's eyes about how I—I I was feeling and how people who are mixed race are feeling in regards to being labeled or name-calling in regards to trying to fit in. I'm not black enough. I'm not white enough. The, you know, the dialect, the what I eat, where I hang out, what music I listen to, it's constantly scrutinized. It's constantly um, being made fun of or assumed that I'm trying to be like what I'm not. And, I, and constantly I kept explaining to people, this is who I am. I, I don't know how to be black. No one taught me how to be black. I don't know how to be, I don't want to be a race. There's not a, a curriculum on how to be a specific culture or race. I felt empty because I didn't know my biological father and I didn't know my biological mother. So I didn't know how to identify with either one uh, of those two. And I would be jealous a lot I would hear my friends say, oh, yeah, you know, they would talk about their parents or they would look at their cousins or their brothers and say, yeah, you got your daddy nose and you got your mom's eyes and, you know, this is where you get your talents from. And I just would, couldn't say anything. Like, I don't know who I look like. I don't know where I get my nose from or where I get my talents from, you know. So I would be really, really sad about it. I only knew the African-American culture because of what my, my, um, my, I mean, my adoptive parents, they african-american so i knew that but i didn't know anything else being african-american was one half her identity i only had one friend in high school who was vietnamese and i knew she was vietnamese but i didn't look like her but by then i knew that i was part vietnamese so she was my friend but i was still i had a lot of emotions in regards to understanding the Vietnamese culture and not really wanting to deal with it. My, my father's best friend is Vietnamese, Mr. Lee, and he has a big family. And my dad would say, you know, okay, I want to start bringing you over to the Lees. And I would go, but I just, in my, in my spirit, I was just angry. Like, why would I want to be around them? They got rid of me. That's the that's the picture I painted was, I don't want to be around them. They speak Vietnamese. I don't know the language. I don't look like them. They abandoned me. You know, I, I don't want to be around them. At this point in her young life, Saran knew some pieces of her past, that her biological father was a black U.S. soldier. Her mother was native Vietnamese. 
The orphanage where she ended up was in Yungtao, about 60 miles southeast of Saigon. But none of those facts could explain the complicated nature of discrimination in Vietnam, in that era. Just as children of mixed-race couples in the U.S. can attract stares and double-takes, imagine what couples or families with half-Vietnamese, half-American children faced in Vietnam while the war was still going on. The shame and racism some mothers and couples faced would be too much. And many mixed-race children were simply left on streets or in dumpsters. By the time Saran was in college in the U.S., she was able to connect with others with a similar background. I mean, I've heard these stories. One guy named Randy, he's a singer now. His his birth, his biological mother, like he stayed with his mother, abused him, tied him against a tree, and just did stuff to him because he was dark-skinned. He was a black. He 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 was half American, and they kept they they grew up with that trauma. I didn't have to go up grow up with that, but they did. So that part breaks my heart in regards to how the war was handled and how the humans were handled during that war. That breaks my heart. In Vietnamese, they were called Mi Lai. In English, they were known as Amerasians. The horrendous stories of how many of the surviving Amerasian children were treated prompted the U.S. to pass two laws, the Amerasian Homecoming Act of 1982 and another in 1988. Those laws basically paved a pathway for children in Southeast Asian countries who were fathered by a U.S. citizen to immigrate to the States. Becoming a citizen wasn't guaranteed, but it opened the door for Amerasians to get lawful permanent resident status. Having been adopted immediately after the war, Saran didn't have to use those legal channels. It wasn't until three decades later, as Hurricane Katrina was approaching, that Saran would make a real effort to retrace her steps back to her roots. We actually were in our, in our family home, and my dad's best friend, Mr. Bo, another, it, it, the f- friends of Mr. Lee, they're all in one, you know, one family union, unit. They called us Sunday night and said, you need to come to Gonzales ASAP. This is going gonna, gonna to be worse than what they're predicting. So we got in our car, one car, and we drove to Gonzales, and it was a, a small house full of Vietnamese people. <laughs> I had no choice. But during that time was like a rebirth, like a, like it was painful in the beginning because, oh, my God, I'm, I'm like surrounded by a whole bunch of Vietnamese people. And one of them was my goddaughter, one of them was my friend, you know, my dad's family, and they embraced me and they embraced the family, but I'm not embracing them. And so I felt conflicted, like, oh, my goodness, like now we have to eat their food every day and <laughs> speak, you know, I have to under- listen to their language and I don't have any friends. You know, during Katrina, we were isolated. Everyone else, my, my mom's family, they were already in New York. My dad's family fled to Florida and so forth. So it was just me, my, my, my mom, my dad, and I. I'm the only child. So I had to deal with that for a couple of weeks, and I was literally in tears, crying. Like, I can't do, I can't do this. Like, I don't understand what they're saying. What if... They're making fun of me. I don't look like them. I, I want to get out of here. And it's just a lot of emotion mixed with the Katrina can't going home, can't go home, it's a can't lot see of stress your friends. A lot of once. stress. Yeah. A lot of stress. But then the next few weeks came, and I still had to be there. I walked in the kitchen, and I remember all of the 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 women were ki- cooking the food, 
and dipping the the meat in the water and making the egg rolls and and I'm like wow this is beautiful like I I love how they cook so experiencing that kind of gave me like an eye opener like wow the you know their culture is so beautiful and family oriented and now I'm actually seeing what they do as a family the the kids still had homework the parents would sit with them and do you know work with them with studies they were very studious it, it started becoming like more of a friendly environment that I'm I'm accepting it was already a friendly environment but now I'm starting to accept it just just embracing the family more um that that was the moment when I was like, okay, you know what? This is who I am. The, the people, the, my these people are beautiful. They love me for who I am. They love my parents, obviously. Now, I have to know that they love me. They don't care about that I'm half black, you know, because that whole notion of you know, uh, Vietnam didn't like African Americans or anything related to American that. That was a, a war thing. That was a government thing. That was a um, political issue in Vietnam. But the people who are here in America, they don't have that notion. They don't have that feeling um, that I know of, of being half Vietnamese. So I let all of that go, and I just started accepting and embracing the culture. After Katrina, Saran moved to New York and began searching for her biological father, at first, I I was angry because I thought maybe my biological father just had a one-night stand with a Vietnamese female. But then I later learned that that wasn't the case for all, all of the GIs. They've had relationships. Saran went online, hoping to find any connection. I entered my name into the database during that time because we didn't have Ancestry.com. And, you know, I just basically said who I am and why, where my, I knew where my birth father could have been stationed in Vong Tao area and hoping that one day someone would say, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm your birth father. And, you know, sometime later, she got a reply. I was at work and I had the email pop up and it was a guy named Larry Taylor and and he said, "Yes, um, I read your your I read your name in a database, and I think that we may you may be my daughter." And when I read it, I was like, "Oh my God, oh my God!" Like my heart was beating, and I'm like, "Oh Jesus!" And so I replied to him, and I said, "Oh wow, okay. Well, I would like to speak with you." And so we got on the phone, and we spoke on the phone. Unfortunately, our information didn't match, but I told him, I said, "Mr. Taylor." I don't think I'll ever find my birth father, but just hearing your voice over the phone, is it okay if I pretend that you're my birth father? And he said yes. And so for about over 10 years, we bond, we, we formed that bond of the pretend dad, pretend daughter. Saran says her parents in New Orleans supported her search. My mother gave me an uh, Ancestry.com kit. Uh, this, she gave that to me about five years ago. And the whole, the whole family took the test, and she wanted me to take it so that she, that I could hopefully find somebody in my family. And some, the results came in, and it was like a list of cousins. And I was like, it was like maybe five. And I was like, oh, cool, you know, I have some relatives. But they were all African-American, and they were all out of town. And emotionally, I was like, okay, let me just email 
so I put a general email, same thing. Saran Bynum, name was Chan Nguyen, and birth father may have been stationed in Vong Tau. Do you know anybody who in your family who served in the Vietnam War? I, I got two responses from two male cousins, and they said that they had some uncles that could possibly have been in that area. And so I spoke to one of them, and he gave me all these names, but it wasn't confirmed like anything. It was just a bunch of names. Like, you know, there were four brothers that served in the military, and one was in Vietnam during that time. And he said, contact, contact, my cousin, contact his cousin. Her name is Andrea. She's into the, into the genealogy thing. So I, that was in October. And so I left it alone. I was, like, petrified. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I just left it alone. December, Christmas comes. Christmas Eve, I kid you not. This overwhelming spirit just came over me. And God was like, Saran, you better contact this girl named Andrea tonight. If you don't, you'll never contact her. And so literally Christmas Eve, probably around 11 o'clock p.m., I called this lady, didn't know her from anywhere, and I told her who I am, and she said, yes, we've been waiting for you since October. She said, yes, she confirmed all of the uncles that were listed, and she said the only way we can do a process of elimination is one of them who did serve in Vietnam has a son. His name is Torbion. We can ask him to take a DNA test. So days later, he took the test. We spoke on the phone a few times before then, and he was all excited. They're from Memphis. He was all excited. Oh, you're my sister anyway. I don't care. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is too much. He called me while I was on set, and I'm like, oh, what? What's going on? And he's like, guess what? It came back. I'm your half-brother. And I'm like, oh, what? And I'm like screaming, and everyone's like, what's going on? I found my half-brother. And his name is Torbion. So I found my, my biological father. His name is Charles Wesson. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2016 of cancer. But I, I have a brother, and I have, like, a whole bunch of uncles. And I, I had two aunts. One passed away recently. The other one is surviving. Um, her name is Aldonia. And they all lived in Memphis. All live in Memphis, not, like, six hours away. And I was told my, my birth father came to New Orleans several times. And I'm like, oh, my God, like my birth father was around me this whole time. And and we never, like, crossed paths. Like, he was alive, and I'm here. That's amazing. And so my, my father uh, got... You know, I gave them their information. They were very excited and very, you know, just supportive. They arranged, my, my birthday is in June. They arranged the family from Memphis to come down and surprise me on my birthday. <laughs> that was the best gift ever. I met all my uncles and my half-brother. It was an amazing experience. Everybody's crying. And my birth my, 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 my birth aunt, my, I don't know how they call it, biological aunt, uh, uh, Mary, she was in the wheelchair and she was in tears, crying and crying and crying. And it was an amazing experience. And then a month later, my Aunt Mary passed away. My mom told me, don't be too sad because Aunt Mary, she knew that she had to meet you. That was her last task that she had to do before she passed. The family knew about me. 
recently for Thanksgiving, they told me my birth father knew he had a, he had a girlfriend. He had a picture of his, his, my birth mother in his wallet, like back in Vietnam. He knew he had a child, and he he tried so hard to try and go back in Vietnam and get me, but they, he didn't have the resources, and you know it was still political back then. You couldn't go there like now, um, and and so from then that point on, he carried that heartbreak all these years until he died but he knew I existed and he and I had a he had a relationship with my birth mother so I feel a sense of belonging. Saran eventually came back to New Orleans. She now owns her own company called Fifth Dimension Studios which produced a movie that is somewhat based on the events and experiences in her life. It's called Where I Stand and was shot here in New Orleans. It's scheduled for a private screening this month, and from there, Saran plans to share it on the film festival circuit. But the script to her real-life story is incomplete. There's a crucial character missing. What do you know of your biological mother? I I don't know anything. All I know is um, they don't know her name. They don't know anything. They just saw a picture, and they can't find it. You know, I asked you know, and my half-brother, and he doesn't know where it is. He said it may have been lost. Saran did manage to locate her biological father and his side of the family, but that was on U.S. soil. The search for her birth mother in Vietnam involves geographical and language barriers, and that's working under the assumption Saran's biological mother is still in Vietnam. I don't feel as hopeful, but maybe one day... There'll be a miracle that someone will reach out to me and say, I'm related to your your biological mother. I don't know. I hope so. How do you carry that with you? I mean, you did mm-hmm. manage to find your biological father. How do you carry the understanding that right now you don't know who your biological mother is? Um, I have a desperate need to find her now. I would love to know, like who she is, and I've always carried in my, my, my soul, same as my birth father, do they think about me, and especially her, because she gave birth to me. Does she think about me every every year for my birthday, uh, Christmas, Mother's, especially Mother's Day? Like, what is she doing if she's alive? Does she have any other children? What does she look like? When I look at myself, it's like, uh, you know, I could kind of see maybe what she looked like, but I just want to look at her face just to just to know that, you know, this is who she is, and she gave me up for a reason to save me. Like, she sacrificed herself to save me, and I just want to be able to, to hug her and tell her thank you, and I'm, I'm good. So pain, you know, the pain is still there. But now that I've found my birth father, I'm more desperate to find her. And I know one day, somehow, I'll find her. Yeah. Do you think a part of that is you also want to find a part of yourself because we're reflections of our parents? Yeah. In a way that you can see a different side of you when mm-hmm. you see physically. Yeah. The person that gave because me I, I I've learned things about my biological father that he used to draw and that's why I get my drawing from and he used to do certain things that I do and I'm like wow you know I can't wait to 
to to to know about my birth mother and where I get my traits from 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 her. You know, especially now that you know I'm I'm embracing the Vietnamese culture and who I am, and I just want to desperately have a picture of her or something that that I can say this is who I came from. This is me. This is my mother. This is my birth mother who gave birth to me. Like like this blood connection on my mother's side. I would love to have that. It took decades, but Saran is now learning and embracing her Vietnamese heritage. A lot of people don't even know about our story. And that's why I'm doing this to open up the door of conversation about the Operation Baby Lift and Amerasian kids. A lot of people don't know about us. They see us in passing, but they oh mixed or whatever. They don't know our story. So that's to my be whole fair, mission. You don't know your whole I don't know my story. whole story. And this is a process for me too, a journey for me too. And I want to share that journey with the the masses and say, hey, this is what happened. This is who we are now. This is where we are now. It's so complicated because mm-hmm. it's in the context of and in the backdrop of what happened during a war. Yes. And I think that's it's a good lesson for us to understand why wars are fought and why policy is so important because things like this, people like you and me are affected. Mm-hmm. But you'll never know our stories if we never tell them. Yes, yes. You know, you can talk about the wins and losses of a war, how many people died, how many soldiers died. That's usually how war is portrayed and depicted. Mm-hmm. But you're carrying the war in a different way. Right, yes. You don't know who your mother is. Mm-hmm. You didn't get to meet your biological father. You have a half-brother now. You have this whole other family. But if you look and pull back, that is a function of a war. Mm-hmm. That all happened because of a war. You and I sitting here right. talking to each other is because of the war. Right, right. And these are the repercussions of it. Yeah. And I think that sometimes your story is you know, a chapter in that big book of the war. Yeah. But we haven't even gotten to your chapter. Right. And that's the problem is sometimes we're so fixated on the war, we don't understand what happened to the people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I, I want to educate is what happened to us, the products, the product of the war. As much as that war determined events on a global scale, it was also highly personal. It's hard to accurately say how many people the Vietnam War affected. There are the soldiers who are now in the twilight of their lives, still suffering with the horrors they saw. There are the families who mourn their loved one who never made it home from Vietnam. And then there's the people of Vietnam. How much do we know about them? What do they think of America today? Does America even care? When you're both American and Vietnamese like Saran Bynum, then those questions aren't just about a war in history books or some faraway country. They're about the place of her birth, a place she has yet to discover. Some immigrants, some refugees might feel a sense of displacement and long for a sense of home. Where's home for you? I I have imagined myself being in Vietnam, having a place there, and that's where I could really say I'm home. Vietnam? Yeah. One day, uh, maybe when I retire or something, I, I would love to just have a place there and just take it all in. This is me. This is this is where I came from. This is me. 
because I've been here all my life. This is my dad's, this is my birth father's side. This is his home. Now I want to share my mom's home. So I want a place there and so I could lay my head and finally rest. For WWL Radio, I'm Ton Trump.